0: Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now, here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro.
1: Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I am your host, Mark Shapiro. Before we get to today's episode, a thank you to our sponsors. First, Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode of Explore the Space. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in 6 months. Visit www.creighton.edu/chee to learn more. Thank you also to Vave Health for sponsoring this episode of Explore the Space podcast. Vave believes that personal ultrasound is the future of medicine with an aim to empower both clinicians and patients. From an affordable wireless device to the industry's first all-inclusive upgrade plan to built-in support with Vave Assist. Their mission is to move the needle on ultrasound use in every clinical setting. Don't forget to check out their site for details on their free virtual ultrasound educational events, otherwise known as hashtag Vave Educasts. The next one is scheduled for Thursday, February 25th at 3 p.m. Pacific time. Go to VaveHealth.com backslash live for more details or find a link in the show notes. You can also find more information online at VaveHealth.com. That's V-A-V-E Health My guest in this episode of Explore the Space is Dr. Nancy Spector, and Dr. Spector is a professor of pediatrics and vice dean for faculty at Drexel University College of Medicine, And she is also the executive director of the Executive Leadership in Academic Medicine Program, also known as ELAM. She joins us for an expansive look at what I like to term her pluripotent efforts around gender equity in healthcare in the United States. Why mid-career female physicians often feel invisible within the profession and the critical need for allyship. The show notes are also packed. Dr. Spector provided us with a number of resources as we move through. She and the people that she collaborate with are very prolific. And so we've really put a lot of links to the articles that she cites, things that she's participated in. They're all in the show notes, and I'll really encourage all of you to go there and look through those resources, download them, keep them for later use, bookmark them, and obviously check out the website for the ELAM program as well. This is a really rich tapestry that she's provided us with of of critically important work. Before we get to the conversation with Dr. Spectre, just want to remind all of you, please do subscribe to Explore the Space on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to download your shows. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. You can check out the archive of Explore the Space podcast at www.explorethespaceshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at ets show. I'm active there and I love interacting with fans. If you have the opportunity to leave Explore the Space podcast a rating and a review wherever you like to download your shows, that really helps us out as well. So with all that being said, I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. So without further ado, Dr. Nancy Spector. Nancy, welcome to Explore the Space Podcast. I'm delighted you're here. We we got postponed, but we made it. We're here. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you, Mark. I want to start with a term that I love that comes up on the show a lot. I like to use it. On social media as well. And I remember when I first learned it in medical school, it just struck me. This is the concept. I loved it. Pluripotent. And I, and I will apply that term to you as I've learned more about you and you and I've connected a couple of times and some other folks who recommended you to explore the space shared with me why you should come on this idea of you having. A multitude of skills and having been able to go in lots of different directions. And even as you've moved through your career, still being in that place, still being able to open up a new toolbox and bring out something different. Do you like the term pluripotent? I love it. I love it.
0: (laughs) I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I
1: do feel like you could have done a, a lot of different things. You will still do a lot of different things. You have already become a professor of pediatrics you've practiced you've lectured all over the country you could have gone into politics you could have done so many different things you have chosen to focus on this idea and concept and driving need of gender equity within the practice of medicine Mm -hmm. where did that spark come from why did why did the decision come to say all of these skills that i have all of this talent connections all of it this is where i'm gonna drive
0: well, for me, it was totally an evolution. So my parents, and this starts when I was a little, little kid. I don't want to exactly tell you how old I am, but it was in the, <laughs> the 60s. <laughs> and my parents were both uh, secondary school teachers, actually. And when I was young and my brother was young, they both my parents said uh, we could do anything anything they would support us except we could not be teachers. And the reason they said that was they felt in the 60s that teachers were not compensated adequately, didn't have enough resources for what they needed to do, and they wanted us to have a, an easier life um, over time. However, they loved education and I was drawn continually to education, but my brother went on to be a corporate lawyer and I went on to be a doctor, so they had a doctor lawyer Children, they were quite proud of that. Uh, I went to medical school at University of Massachusetts, which had the most amazing educators in pediatrics, and I was drawn to that field. I remember deciding, was I going to go into family medicine or pediatrics? And uh, the the role models I had were just tremendous. Then I, so I was the first doctor ever in my family. When I went to residency, um, and at St. Christopher's Hospital for Children in Philadelphia, I was then struck with another layer of education that I just couldn't even, you know, have ever thought about. And my first inpatient medicine attending in pediatrics said to me, you know, you should do academic pediatrics, which I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, I I didn't even know what it really meant to be a doctor. His name is Dr. Daniel Shidlow, Shidlow, and he ended up being my mentor my entire career. He's still my mentor. And he just recently retired as the dean of our medical school. And his influence was tremendous. And along the way through my career path, I was drawn towards education in medicine. And what was interesting is my father evolved over time. Um, He uh, was a professor at Middlebury College, and then he was recruited to Brown Medical School to lead the education of the Brown medical students. So he went from education to medical education, and I went through medicine to medical education. So we ended up overlapping over time. And then as I was advancing sort of in my early career, I really it just occurred to me, I want to be a medical educator. So I went to faculty member at Drexel, uh, was MCP, actually Medical College of Pennsylvania at the time, who was actually at the very time I visited her, creating ELAM, the executive leadership and academic program, uh, leadership program that I now lead. And she told me, what I needed to do to be a medical educator, this predated all the, you know, master's in medical education type of programs. And she said to me, not only do this work, which I ended up doing at Harvard and other things, she said, make sure you get leadership training at every stage of your career. And I took that to heart and I did. And then in 2009, I was selected from by my own dean to enter ELAM, the fellowship that I now lead. And my whole world opened up because what I realized was I could make tremendous impact by helping others advance professionally with strategic career planning and leadership development and help them be the best they could be in their roles in education and in leadership, in science, in whatever they did. So I just, I was fascinated by this whole concept. So when I finished my ELAM fellowship, I moved more and more into faculty and professional development. And then I started working in my own pediatric professional societies in in helping others uh, develop leadership programs, whether it was the Association of Pediatric Program Directors or the American Academy of Pediatrics. And then over time, this opportunity opened up for me to come to ELAM to be an associate director. and. Working in this space for the last five years has just been so impactful for me. I, you know, I one of my own mentors asked me once, you know, what was the most satisfying part of my career? He said for him, it was direct patient care, which I love, love, love and miss because I'm not doing it currently. But what I articulated to him is it is so powerful for me to be able to help other leaders in the country. It help advance whatever they're doing in science and medicine and help others in their own institutions advance and to change the landscape over time. Um, and so ELAM's been around, this is our 26th class. We have a lot of ways to go. And we could talk about that, but that's how I got to where I am. And, and it's just a very important space in particular right now with what's happening in the world and in the country. And so I feel uh, there's so much work to do and I want to contribute.
1: As you've moved through that expansive career, I would imagine there have been friction points for you and now as you are bringing others along and, and you know, kind of following that maxim of as you you know lift as you rise, there's lots of different ways people say it and I love that idea. Are there specific things that when you're talking with someone or when you're coaching someone or you're bringing another class through the Elam Fellowship, are there specific friction points that you see come up over and over that you focus on and really try to educate around?
0: Many. And I'm building on the shoulders of giants in my work at Elam. Um, the people who have come before me have done just so many wonderful things. And I think the biggest, one of the most important issues that we talk about in depth in the Elam Fellowship is the fact that women underinvest in social capital and for many reasons. And it it, it depends on the where they are in their career, but women tend to go and do the task at hand, do it well, take care of their families, whether it's young children or, or elderly parents or whoever it may be, and they tend not to invest in social capital. So we spend a lot of time discussing the importance of women investing in social capital so that they are there at the table when there's a sponsorship opportunity to advance. Also, women um, in general, um, and this is, again, it's not true for everyone, but women tend to need to have, if there's a job description, we want to have nine or 10 out of the 10 things on the job description before we put our hat in the ring. And that is often not true for men. So empowering women to understand that they, they are going to be amazing candidates for certain things as they want to advance. But there are other other major structural issues in our in academic medicine in particular. So we have major structural issues that, you know, sort of come from the days of yore <laughs> where, you know, men tend to be at the top and they still are. There's this amazing paper uh, by a colleague of mine, Dr. Reshma Jagsi, who is an Elam alumnus from last year. She writes quite a bit in the gender equity space. and she has she did a a forecast of if we continue, the way we're going in terms of advancing women in leadership, we will not reach equity at the decanal level, meaning the dean at the top, until the year 2070. That's and too so, long.
1: That's, that's just too a long. That's long. long. That's time. that's yeah. That's that's right. suboptimal.
0: Well, I'm 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 pretty sure I'm going to be retired by then. <laughs> <sure you> <laughs> Yeah. So there 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 are structural issues that yeah. we're all up against. And then there are in the career trajectory, um there are issues that happen for women at every stage of the career of their career. Early career You know, women are are trying to juggle a million things, getting their, you know, just like anybody early in their career, trying to get their either their research off the ground or their clinical stuff off the ground and work life balance. They're often asked to do more citizenship tasks than men. And they're more likely to say yes, which may distract them from doing the other things that maybe would get them to be able to advance further. Then there's a there's a there's sort of a, a term that Julie Silver, Dr. Julie Silver and colleagues of mine have, have talked about, which is that women at mid-career are almost invisible. It's like we're not people don't recognize us or they're not even paying attention to us. And then there's the risk there of women leaving the field. And then at the leadership levels, there are definitely issues because the majority of leaders. So I'll give you some numbers at the decanal level the assistant dean level, 46% of of assistant deans are women. Then at associate level, it's 39%. Senior associate, it's 33%. And at the decanal level, the highest level, it's 18 to 19%. And literally we count every day when a woman dean either comes on or leaves. And we have not been able to break those barriers. And at the highest level, if you don't have critical mass, meaning at least over 33% of women at a certain level. Women are highly vulnerable, Often they don't have allyship, and if they misstep, even in a small way, it's incredibly visible.
1: I like that you called out the article that you co-wrote with Julie and others on invisibility. As I was preparing for this episode, Julie actually sent me that article and said, hey, you need to read this. And I did. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of things in it that are striking. I think it does lay out a lot of the structural pieces that you alluded to, and we're going to have a link to the article in the show notes. But the thing that I want to pull out and, and explore with you in a little bit more detail is the word choice of invisibility when i saw that i was really struck there's no subtlety or nuance with the word invisible that means gone that means erased. that means cannot be seen detected hurt. you know it's it's bad in this context invisibility is bad and i'm curious not curious i'm alarmed that that was the word that all of you felt like this is the right descriptive term in this time and place we're going to choose invisible was there something? Was it the opportunity to write the article? Was it what you found? What was the sense that when, when you and your collaborator sat down and said, okay, what, what's the, what's the central dogma here that it was this idea of invisibility? I want to learn a little bit about where that came from.
0: Mm. So, yes, the group of us who wrote the article together, talked about that quite a bit. And it, it really, um, the article stemmed from conversations we'd had together about how, you know, often um, when women are in early training, so either residency or fellowship, you know, there's there's structure to how they progress through their education. Early career, um, often women don't feel often that they're treated any differently than men, you know, because they're they're often doing roles that are service-related, in terms of clinical work or other things. But then there's this gap um, where men tend to get sponsored into different situations, roles, high visibility committees, working within professional organizations. And again, it's that women are don't have that social capital or connection and they're not in the room at the right time and they, they get looked over. And so men tend to all of a sudden get opportunities where, again, women in mid-career are, are juggling all those things at home um, and trying to, again, do the basic pieces of their jobs, but they're, they're not getting recognized. They're not getting chosen. They're not um, being sponsored. So there's this period of time where uh, men are getting selected to advance being sponsored for things they're in the right place at the right time to be selected and women just feel like they're invisible we are not selected and we're overlooked and we're not chosen and then there's a I always say there's this very vulnerable time particularly for women it's about nine years into an academic career where people start thinking why am I doing this you know, I'm working so hard and I could go into private practice or I could work part time. I could make maybe more money or I could, you know, have a better work life balance. And so people get pulled away from the field. So it's a very vulnerable time. A very it's interesting vulnerable to time. think
1: about it like that, though, because for me, and again, this is the prism that I look through as a you know white male physician in America, mid-career equates to your prime the best Mm -hmm. years, right? I'm, I'm, I'm settled. I know how to be in attending. I know how to be efficient. I know how to make rounds. I know how to do things. I've met people. I've been to conferences, right? The, the network building is all now evolving. Like mid-career equals like the time to really strike out and really do interesting things and really get steeped in whatever you love the most. But what I'm hearing from you is that for women in, at least in this context, academic medicine, is the time where you're looking outside. And that Mm -hmm. is profoundly alarming.
0: It's very, it's very alarming and women need a lot of support in that period of time. In fact, that is one of the reasons why Elam was founded and created because uh, the fellows who come to Elam are, are mid to senior career. You, in order to come to Elam, you need to be well established in your own scholarship and have leadership roles, but have that potential But it takes you to a new platform by giving you the skills to move to the next level and help people overcome some of that vulnerability of, uh, you know, and, and just the worry that I'm not good enough. I'm not I'm not certain of the direction. I don't have the right network to support me. I could I could tell you a story that I think really exemplifies the difference between how men and women sail through careers. And the story I'll tell is a real story. I've uh, been to many places um, as a visiting professor, and when I usually when I go, I usually spend time with the junior faculty and mid-level faculty, and then I go and I meet with the leadership. And uh, I was at a very prominent school, well connected to ELAM. So I knew some of the leaders, but I knew some of the junior faculty. And I spent my first day with the junior faculty who were expressing over and over again their concern over their invisibility and that they weren't getting tapped to be on the right committees or visible in the right way or um, supported in the right way to uh, Uh, you know, accomplish their scholarship. And then I went um, next to meet the dean, who was a senior white man, wonderful person, very supportive, who spent a lot of time telling me how wonderfully they were doing in supporting women at every part of their career. So there was definitely a disconnect there. Then I went next to the hospital leadership who, again, the faculty all worked for this, you know, dual medical school healthcare leadership group. And it was a, a classic situation where the leadership team was at the top of the hospital, like the top floor. And and it was literally around the perimeter of this whole top floor where beautiful offices with windows and every single executive member was in one of those offices and they were all white men. And in the center of the the whole building were all the women who were their administrative assistants. And I went to meet the senior... CEO with a colleague and we had a discussion and he was very, very proud about the diversity, equity and inclusion and sponsorship programs they had both within the medical school and the healthcare system. And he literally said to me, we are such a great leadership team. We make decisions quickly, efficiently. We make the right financial decisions and we're such a great team that every Saturday we play golf. He said this to me, this was a year ago. And just the misperception, like, uh, like them not recognizing that if at the top, there is a very homogeneous layer, right? And then people coming up, w- where are they going to advance? How are they going to advance? How are they gonna break in? And even if there was one woman who could break in, They would be the one woman in this big group without necessarily the right support. So that happens in a lot of our places, not every place, but in most of our places. And so women coming up the pike when they see that, they wonder, like, well, how am I ever going to get to that place? I don't see a million examples, role models, mentors or sponsors who are going to help me get there. And by the way, this is totally amplified for women with intersectionality of any type. So women of color, uh, LGBTQ plus faculty, uh, it, it, it's really amplified for them. And so um, one of the things I have been really, really trying to focus on and amplify is the concepts of allyship and getting us all together to think about these issues rather than this being a women's issue.
1: I think that's a critical piece. And as I'm hearing that though, the thing that is alarming is what you, two things, well, a lot <laughs> that mm-hmm. stood out amidst the morass. 2020, right? Not that long mm-hmm. ago, last year. Mm-hmm. Minimal progress made despite all of the hard work by so many people across so many fields that it, that still there, 2020. And then the second part is generalizable. Right. This institution could be anywhere in the United States mm-hmm. and no one would be surprised, quite honestly. And uh-uh. it just, it puts the challenge into very specific relief. And then on top of that challenge, right, we look at the, the paper that you wrote on this concept of invisibility, right, February 2020. Now we overlay the rocket fuel of COVID and yeah. we're seeing emerging data and lots of people talking about and real stories and hard figures on the impact and the disproportionate impact that the pandemic is having on women and particularly women with, like you said, any type of intersectionality. This is a huge problem. When you sit with it, where do you even want to start?
0: So I would say, you know, uh, we've spoken before about this, about the number of visits I had pre pandemic to different institutions and professional societies. If, if people know I'm coming often, my audience is the majority are women and I have started to say, and I think Dr. Silver has said the same thing and probably Dr. Jagsi and others, that we will not accept invitations anymore if we're only speaking to women, because we really need to speak to everybody and the concepts around thinking about this from a systemic you know, this is a systemic problem. This is a all of us issue. It's not a woman's issue. You know, by the way, junior women um, really push back when I share with them how they need to sometimes sort of uh, work in the system to ensure that they can advance. They get angry. They want they're, they're like, why can't the system change? And my response often is we we have to do both at the same time. You need to be able to understand the playing field you're on. It's like I watched The Queen's Gambit, uh, and I, you know, without tranquilizers. <laughs> Sometimes I think about, if you've seen the movie uh, or the show, that there's a chess, it's a chessboard and you have to be able to maneuver through the chessboard. But at the same time, it's our responsibility as leaders to change the structure of our organizations. And that is through policies and procedures, but then real implementation of things. And the, again, the concept of allyship is incredibly important. And it, since the pandemic, interestingly, and since... George Floyd's death. There have been several really great articles written. Um, One, which I love, it was published in Harvard Business Review in November, December 2020 by Tisdale and his colleagues. It's called Be a Better Ally. It speaks to white men and how they can more effectively be allies for women. And then there are articles around thinking how white women can be better allies to women with intersectionality. And there's an article by Stephanie Creary from Forbes from actually last summer. And both of them outline how important it is for us to be, all of us, to be able to listen and to learn and to be on a learning journey together, not to expect that people of difference from us should educate us, but it's our responsibility to educate ourselves and then to be active and to be advocates and to, to be aware all day long, every day about what the issues are for others in our lives. And, you know, if you think back to the little, there are little things we can do, which is, you know, listen and learn. Um, engage and support to intervene on a, you know, uh, on a daily basis when we see things, but they're bigger, bigger, bigger policy issues. You know, I, I want to mention one thing, which I think is critically important that in, in the country and this extends to academic medicine, we still have significant wage gaps. So in medicine currently, and this is current data, women are paid seventy six. Cents to ninety cents to the dollar that men are paid. If we look across all disciplines, um, there's a day uh, that you may know about, which is called Equal Pay Day. That means across every every. That sector of life in the United States. All the women need to work until March 31st, until we make the same amount of money that all the men have made on December 31st of the year prior. This year, Black Women's Equal Pay Day was August 13th or last year, 2020. Native American Women's Equal Pay Day was October 1st, 2020. And Latina Women's Equal Pay Day was October 29th, October 29th. So there are major structural issues that are in place. And then there are things that as individuals, we have to do on a daily basis to to move the needle, which we, again, if you go back to Dr. Jagsi's paper, um, if we don't do major things, we're going to move so slowly. At, at Elam, we say we're moving at glacier speed. It could be at a snail's pace, but we have to do major disruption to be able to move forward, I think.
1: I agree with you. I would submit, though, that... One of the places that we can do it is how we're sharing our best information. And obviously mm-hmm. I want to, uh, we'll get links to all of those articles that will all be in the show notes. And I've, sh- we've talked about this. This has come up on the podcast before. Mm-hmm. We are still sharing our best information on outdated platforms that most people either are not aware of or mm-hmm. do not have access to because they're behind a firewall. Mm-hmm. Academic publishing is a huge barrier in my opinion to progress. The things that you just listed, I haven't seen them. And that's a huge problem. Right? Mm-hmm. They, they're not get, we, we talk about this concept of going to people where they are, going to people where they live. My concern is that these, these preeminent papers by the smartest people, the most responsive people and engaged people, they're not getting to, to those who need to read them, to those who can learn from them. They, they go into repositories that then disappear into PubMed hell. And I think that that is an opportunity for us to say, okay, we've got our best and our brightest. We have really important things to say. Now, where should we say them so that they get out, so that they break out of that old mold? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, um, and uh, Dr. Silver Julie and her I'm one of her colleagues Um, she's been working on campaigns to try to ensure that papers that are published in this realm are free access um, no matter what journal yeah Um, and so we've um, that need her science campaign that she has been working with oh yeah has made progress there and I know you've been amplifying that which is really really important I have been actually trying to help our groups get in front of more powerful groups so for instance at the double the dean the council of deans i've recently started to engage in that group of like how do we share this information because again 80 percent of our deans of our medical schools are white men not not quite they're they're men i'm not they're I'm not all white men <laughs> they there they're men and so ensuring that we get in front of the right audiences that have power and influence and then you know what it what it uh, so you're you're much more active in social media than i am but that those echo chambers we get into
1: oh yeah yeah
0: yeah that we're just like talking to each other yeah um how do we get out and beyond that and yeah. to the right people who can make change um by the way i i would add we, you know, I shared the numbers of deans. By the way, that that the reason we go from forty six percent assistant deans to eighteen uh, percent full deans as you go up the decanal ladder is because the assistant deans are the caretaking deans. The um, like me, faculty affairs, faculty development, diversity, equity, and inclusion; those types of things. That the the vice deans and the senior associate deans they have the power, because they have the budget and they have the money. And so more men are at the top of that chain. And so we have to, we have to think about that as well. But we have to your point, Mark, we have to get in front of the right audiences. And, uh, and, and, you know, there was as part of Julie's campaign for the Her Time Is Now campaign, she talks a lot about thinking about Uh, the disparities of structures of our professional societies and our journals and our editorial boards, we have to like break apart all of our structures, whether it's (laughs) NIH, the journals, you know, we have to. um,
1: There's one that I want to call out and get your perspective on specifically, but What I will ask you in advance of that are just kind of plant the seed. I think one place that you and those who with whom you work and have done this stuff that I think would be an interesting space to share information in a readily available fashion to a broad audience would be to do a TEDx. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, you and Julie and a variety of others, you guys could do the talk like now you could press record and you'd be done because you've done it. You just know this stuff so well. Your command of it is so great. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. But a TEDx Mm -hmm. is really cool because, right, everyone's everyone's seen a TEDx, not everyone, but it's a very, Mm -hmm. very common Mm -hmm. place for a general audience to go to seek out new information from brilliant people. And I think that that might be an interesting space for you guys to start because I don't think it would be that much work aside from setting up the TEDx itself because you guys can give these talks. Like right now, that all being said, so I'm going to plant that seed and we'll move on Mm -hmm. because one of the structures that I like to poke at a lot and have discussed and explored the Space a lot is rising to professorship in academia. Yeah. This is one that was created a long time ago. And I'm said this before. This was designed a long time ago by people who look and sound like me to elevate people who look and sound like me. You are a professor. You've Mm -hmm. gone through the process, the rigmarole, the publishing, the the reviews, the this and the that's. When we talk about professorship and rising into professorship as being an opportunity for revision and improvement, also acknowledging the impact that COVID is having and the opportunities that COVID has given for so many incredible people to get out into mass media and to do research and to share and to educate the public, is it ripe for a renovation? Is it ripe for disruption or is that a pipe dream?
0: Oh, I think it's right. And, uh, you know, even the most traditional... Ivy League places are thinking about um, revision. I think, but it's interesting too. You know, the um, a lot of my colleagues who are part of either Times Up Healthcare or Proud Julie's group of promoting and respecting our women doctors are the people who are front and center on the um, you know, CNN, Fox, yeah, yeah, the oh extra yeah, choose dark hats, chicken, yeah, Megan Randi,
1: yeah. Yeah,
0: they're they're out there. They are. And they're doing a fantastic job. Yes. How how they're getting credit for that is another question. Right. So they are they are making they are making impact and they have influence. So the way I think about promotion from instructor assistant associate full professor is your you have an increasing sphere of influence and impact and what you are stating is that we have been working in old school rules, right? So a lot of our a A&P committees, appointments and promotions committees are looking at how many R01s do you have and how many first authored nature papers do you have? And right now, influence and impact has changed completely. First of all, the types of scholarship we do. So it, whether it's quality improvement and patient care, education, advocacy and community work, uh, traditional work research, translational, you know whatever it is, we have to like blow up our AMP systems. And many organizations, institutions have done that, including my own, where we created completely new tracks to support people who were advancing as leaders, advancing as educators, et cetera. But to do that, you also have to open up the idea of what scholarship is and influence and impact. That's the critical point, though, because... the way
1: we do it now in the last 24 months, the last 12 months, the way we do that is different than it's ever been. And so just like the profession has demonstrated agility in pivoting to telemedicine platforms to account for, you know, communities under lockdown orders and all of the different things that have come up in the pandemic. It is essential that we demonstrate that same level of agility because the people who you mentioned, right, those names, we know those names now, but not just you and I know those names. The American public knows those names. They trust those names as fonts of right and correct and thoughtful information that must be rewarded it must be recognized because the other thing that's just crazy making is you see the chiron under their name and you bet it's got their affiliated institution and they're delighted to get that promotion on msnbc or cnn but Mm -hmm. it doesn't say professor and i i i it's so i don't know if my frustration is disproportionate but i it's really irritating it's it's not right
0: I agree with you. I completely agree with you, and and it's not just a of handful of people, right? But some of them are, yeah, and, and exactly. It's that we're talking.
1: Is- we're talking now, many, many dozens, probably into the hundreds of people who, in the last twelve months, have become cornerstones of um, of how the profession of medicine in America interacts with the public. It's happened really fast.
0: It absolutely has, and and traditional scholarship the very traditional. Yeah. Um, I wrote a paper in uh, for JAMA Open about this, that women are slipping back in yeah. our traditional scholarship because we are doing all those other things. And so uh, there is a worry. Um, and as I go from institution to institution, that traditional scholarship that we get rewarded for is right. people just don't have time. So you're right. And we're not matching, you know, the reality of where people are making impact and, and allowing that to influence what's going to happen yeah. in their yeah. advancement. There's a big disconnect. And I, I think this is something, I'm going to throw it out there on this uh, podcast, that the and I have a call with them coming up. The Council of Deans needs to start looking at and thinking about how are they going to reward people who are doing such incredible work.
1: I have a resource that I'm going to send you then because I'm not going to be on that call. And it would be like the height of chutzpah for me to say, yeah, can you invite this non-academic physician to join (laughs) like that? (laughs) But so I was really fortunate. I got to work with Vinnie Aurora, Shika Jane, who you mentioned, Charlie Ray and Avio Glasser on a COVID-19 Curriculum vitae matrix, which is really designed to capture all of the COVID-related activities that people are doing. We just got it published in the Journal of Hospital Medicine. We had a letter published in the publications of the National Academy of Science. Like this is there's lots of ways to do it. This is one. And it's I think it's really exciting. And we've got some really good people that have that have liked it. I'll send it to you because if you're getting in front of those people, those are the people, like you said, right at that level, they must pay attention. They they absolutely must. This is a critical moment for them as responsible leaders to see how much the tectonic plates have shifted and, and adapt.
0: I, oh, I would love that. And I will promote it. I want to give a shout out to the Journal of Hospital Medicine also. I know, you know, Dr. Samir Shah. and I do. When he. And when he took over, I, we just had a conversation about you actually the other day on our on his editorial board meeting. I'm on his editorial board, and how much progress he has made in yeah. in like taking a journal to another level of thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion yeah. is incredibly important. And I will I would love to see what you what you have have created because I agree. And do you know Have you heard of this? It's called the Fauci effect with medical school applications. So I am. Part I
1: have, the, I have. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll sit in the cynic camp with it and let's see how it goes. But I would love to hear your take on the Fauci effect, a very clickbaity term, if we're being
0: honest. Oh, t- totally. But I, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll just share like from a perspective of medical school applications. Yes. So yes. I have a very large medical school. We have 260 students per year. We're going to 300 a year. Our application pool is generally 13,000 a year. This year it's over 17,000. Okay. So an increase of 4,000 applications. Yeah. So yeah. what whatever that means, I so you I, I, you I I'd love to hear your pushback on that, but <laughs> but there's this uh, at least interest in, you know, thinking about the field.
1: I love it. I think it's great. Uh, my cynicism, and you and I will 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 play this out in in the next time you come on because okay. you and I've already we we've already cut some pretty big some pretty big chunks out of the behemoth. We can't do all of it for sure, but that's an interesting one. And you know, I, I applied right at the end of a dot com boom to medical school, and the same thing was happening like when I was a senior in college. And you know, we've all seen what happened during the economic crisis of 2008 and nine. Like these things happen, but does it lead to meaningful change? Does it actually do anything to the texture of our medical oh. school classes? and things like that? Or does it just pour money into the coffers of those who profit from these structures? That's where my cynicism rises. I, we've, we've we've kind of danced to this music before, um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I feel like it's just been rebranded and repackaged under that really, really great term of the Fauci effect. Um, but whether it actually leads to a different mosaic of medical students and a different way that we look at the profession, we'll see. I hope so. But I'm 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 in the I'm in the cynic camp, and I'm not often cynical. I'm I'm a pragmatic optimist most of the time.
0: You you are yes, and I, but by the way, I uh, since uh, I did all my training at St. Christopher's, which is the third poorest zip code in the country in Philadelphia, North Philadelphia. Yeah, uh, I think we need to start at the uh, you know preschool level recruiting the people.
1: pipeline yes yeah.
0: the pipeline Dr. Com.
1: Capers talked about this mm-hmm. on Explore the Space and he talks about the pipeline and he goes all the way back you're absolutely right he doesn't talk yeah. about college he doesn't talk about high school he goes way back into primary school
0: Yep that's what we need to do I mean sure.
1: We need to have you back on Explore the Space Nancy holy smokes this is we've covered a ton we will have links in the show notes to these articles that I think you and I can both acknowledge need a wider and broader audience there's is, there's is work to be done. It is generational work. It's not going to be done tomorrow, but the fact that you are in the mix and that we know some of the other incredible people that are in the mix is exciting, and I am really grateful to you for taking so much time to come and speak with us. This was really tremendous. So thank you for all of that.
0: Oh, it was wonderful to speak to you, and I'm I'm thrilled you invited me. Thank you so much.
1: My thanks once again to Dr. Specter for joining us and just want to remind all of you, all of those articles and resources that she called out, all of them are linked in the show notes, so please take advantage. Please take a look around there as well. My thanks also to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode of Explore the Space podcast. Learn more about Creighton's Executive MBA and Executive Fellowship programs at www.creighton.edu/chee. And also thank you to Vave Health for sponsoring this episode. That's Vave with a V. Don't forget to check out their website for details on their free virtual ultrasound educational events, also known as hashtag Vave Educasts. With the next one coming up on February 25th at 3 p.m. Pacific time. Go to www.vavehealth.com/live for more details or find a link in the show notes. We are looking forward to a big February on Explore the Space podcast. So thank you all so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember to subscribe. Please remember to share the show with your friends, your colleagues. It really helps us out. We will be back with more soon. So please remember in the meantime wear your masks, maintain physical distancing, avoid crowded indoor spaces, wash your hands, take care of yourselves, and we will see you soon. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to Explore the Space.